So regeneration, regeneration is our main discipleship training in Christian life and spiritual growth uh, training environment. Um, it's a program that happens here on Monday nights. It's oriented around a 12-step uh, recovery curriculum. And it's a really important part of uh, who we are as a church. In fact, I'd say that it's one of the single most important things that you can be part of here at First Christian Church. If you haven't been through it, I highly recommend it because it's not just for those who supposedly need recovery. It's for all who are in recovery from addiction to sin, which is all of us. Are we preaching yet? We like to say that Regen is our church's vocabulary for soul care because it not only teaches you a pretty robust theology of sin and the human condition, it actually teaches you the gospel at great length and with great depth in a way which can become for you a healthy guide for lifelong spiritual growth in Jesus, for dealing with sin, and for being reconciled not just to God, but to one another. Regen is secret sauce at First Christian Church, and you are not above needing it. I say all that because basically every single week, um, there's an opportunity for me to uh, stand up and basically give uh, what we call our recovery issues, which is just a nice way of saying like our sins. Uh, so I'll say them as a part of what we do at Regen uh, for all to hear. So I'll stand up as I'm helping lead worship with Chris Carlson, um, our music and worship minister. I'll say, hi, my name is Scott. I have a new life in Christ, and I'm in recovery for. And then I name some things. Uh, Performance-based acceptance, an addiction to pornography, and pride, anger, and depression. And then everybody there at Regen says, hi, Scott. Hi. Glad to have you here. So... My issues are many, and that short list just represents a few of them. It scratches the surface. I sometimes add Oreos, peanut butter cups, um, being an, an in-my-heart cusser, those kinds of things. But those aren't the hard parts of what I say. And I say all that because what I want you to hear is that as, as a pastor, it isn't admitting my past with porn. It's not admitting that I'm often angry or that I still struggle with with overwhelm and depression that tempt me to, to quit many times daily and just disengage from the world. As a pastor, I struggle most with saying, I have a new life in Christ. I struggle with the part of saying, I have a new identity in Jesus. I feel like that's the part I'm worst at living from or seeing clearly or holding on to tightly or living from in my relationships with others. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, listen, I'm super blessed. I have a superhero wife. I have wonderful children about whom I am crazy proud. I have an amazing church I have the privilege of leading that really is all about helping people find and follow Jesus. But I can be rolling along from day to day Nothing abnormal, everything's fine. I'm aware I'm blessed with more than I could ever imagine, let alone deserve, and one tiny little thing happens. Just one tiny little thing happens, or one little tiny thing is said, and boom, I am instantly defeated and spinning downward in this, this whirlwind of, of the voices of guilt and shame. Think about this. How is it that even though as Christians 
we're aware, we're intellectually well aware that in Christ we have everything we could ever actually need, and yet we are constantly feeling like we never have enough. I think it's because we haven't yet learned as fully as we need. We haven't yet learned to die to the old ways of dealing with our sin that depend on ourselves and one another. And we've got to learn to continue to die to the old ways of dealing with sin that depend on ourselves and one another and learn to live in the the new way of dealing with sin that depends only and entirely on the blood of Jesus. You see, this is the root of our relationship with others. The grace we have from Jesus extended to others. And this is the way that we need to learn to operate with others. You see, you can't have actual peace and reconciliation with others if there's not peace and reconciliation with God. Let me show you what I mean here in Ephesians 2.13. Start in there in Ephesians 2, verse 13. This is the last verse in our passage from last week. It's worth looking at for us today because of how it shows us something that's the foundation for our passage here today in verses 14 to 18. So look at verses uh, 13 first in chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 13, where Paul says this, first two words, but now, meaning post-Jesus, A.D. as opposed to B.C., saint not sinner, righteous not condemned, and this is why, but now, three words, in Christ Jesus, press pause, right here. For Paul, this phrase, in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus, or in Christ, or because of Christ, any combination of those kinds of things, that's a shorthand way for Paul of describing what we call union with Christ, meaning that when we are knighted to Jesus by repenting of our sin and trusting in him and being baptized into his death and raised to new life, then at that point, because we're unified, we're with him, we have everything needed to be in saving forever relationship with God. At the very beginning of Ephesians, Paul says this in verse three. He starts off by telling us that in Christ, God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Meaning, and this is the amazing part, meaning that believers in Christ Jesus have everything needed that can't be earned in order to have saving relationship with the God who was previously our enemy because of our own sin. That is an amazing truth that we call the gospel. And the gospel is such a beautiful and a formative and a central truth that it should, it should redefine us, it should identify us, it should animate our relationships, it should motivate the way that we treat and talk with one another. Being in Christ Jesus and having every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is so central that it's not just added to the old you, but it is the new you, Paul is saying here. It's clear that this is a truth, this simple gospel truth of what we have in Jesus. It's a truth that Paul never got bored with. I mean, if you've been reading along in Ephesians, we're doing this thing where we, throughout this whole series, we say on Monday, start with chapter one, so you're through chapter six by the end. We're reading that as our Bible plan uh, throughout this series. If you've been doing that from week to week, then you know exactly what I mean when I say, for the first three chapters, Paul just just gushes and gushes about the amazing truth of what we have in Jesus. 
And here in verse 13, he's taking that simple truth of being made new in Christ Jesus to make clear to us that we were once alienated and now we are near him and with him. And that has implications for our lives with one another that we'll get to soon. So he says, but now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Far off was what some of the Jews called Gentiles at the time, those who weren't a part of the people of God. They're the far off ones. They were the near ones. And so that's the relationship that that was us B.C. and is now us A.D. So we who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Now, I want you to think about this with me uh, for a minute here. According to Paul here in verse 13, to whom are we brought near and how? That's easy, right? It's right there in the text. It says, we who were once far off have been brought near, obviously, to God. How? By the blood of Christ. But think about this with me for a minute in the context of our relationships with one another. If it's true that we're brought near to God by the blood of, by the blood of Christ, and, and that is a result of that reconciliation with God, that we have every spiritual blessing that we could ever need in Jesus. If that's true, then why do so many of us so constantly struggle with personal identity and with experiencing the fullness of this new life in Christ? and with knowing intimately who we are as counted righteous in him. Why do we feel moment by moment like this supposedly secure state of, of being centered in the righteousness that, that comes from the blood of Jesus, but that's actually something that, that is this very tenuous give or take status that seems to depend on tiny things? that not only change from moment to moment or circumstance to circumstance, but that are 100% of the time the kinds of things that when you really think about it, most certainly could never actually threaten what Christ's blood has achieved for us. Why, if we have truly, as Paul seems to to verbalize it, (laughs) everything we need in Jesus Why do we constantly struggle with feeling as if we never have enough? Here's why. One of the main reasons why. It's because so many of us have still not grown beyond our previous addictions to the world's ways of dealing with sin. And so we train one another in this sort of like upside-down, backward method of human sin management for one another. Instead of the grace of God that brings actual atonement for sin. This is why, this is why you keep manipulating the world around you into a system of self. This is why in your relationships you are constantly perverting people around you into functional messiahs they could never possibly be. This is why why you are constantly shifting blame from yourself to someone else or to something else. And you are refusing to take responsibility. 
This is why you go from relationship to relationship to broken relationship with no end in sight. This is why you become angry and frustrated when somebody doesn't do what you want or things don't go your way. This is why you can't be around people or you have to be around people. Because you've, you've learned this backwards, upside down, worldly, inefficient, doesn't work, not actual way to deal with sin from one another. We have it backwards. Believing that, that our problem of sin can ultimately be dealt with in some form or fashion this way horizontally, from the world, from people, instead of the only means possible. And so we are in this constant conflict with people around us because we are functionally trusting in them and our relationships with them to save us more than the blood of Christ. Buying into sin management for one another, systems of the world that seek peace with one another first, foremost, almost to the exclusion of the actual sin problem we have that is the conflict with one another. It's backwards, it won't work. The only reconciliation you can meaningfully have with somebody else is, is because it comes from the kind of reconciliation that you know you have from God. If you've done something to me or I've done something to you, absolutely, this conversation needs to happen. But it must come from the truth that sin before God is the real problem we all have. We'll unpack a lot more of that in a little bit. But keep reading in Ephesians 2, verse 14. Paul begins to make it clear that real peace with one another only comes from peace with God. He says this, keep reading, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Think about this. He himself is our peace. It's not just that he brought peace or he, he offered peace. Paul says he is our peace, meaning that it's his perfect life and his sacrifice that brings ultimate and final peace to the war that we were waging with God. And here's the rub for us. Having Jesus himself as our perfect and final peace with God means that peace with others doesn't have to actually rest on having perfect peace with others. You should write that down and think about that because that is deep, y'all. The only actual real peace you can have with others is because you don't have to have peace with others. The preacher told us today you shouldn't pursue peace with people. That is not what I said. <laughs> Think about this. It's profound. He himself is our peace. Not just in the relationship between you and Jesus, but in the relationship between you and me. For he himself is our peace. He defines the relationship right there as an us, as an our. He is our peace. Meaning that all true reconciliation between people must be rooted in atonement from sin that comes from God. So what this does is it makes us a new people. It makes us a new people called the church who are this new thing, this one man that he made out of the two that was estranged groups that we were. Keep reading. 
He's made us both one, meaning Jesus as our peace has made two previously estranged groups one new, different, and unified group called the church. He's made us one, and he's broken down in his flesh by his life and death. He's broken down what he says here, verse 14, is the dividing wall of hostility. Put that in your back pocket. We'll come back to it in a couple minutes. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, verse 15 at the beginning here is not Paul saying that the the Ten Commandments were bad or or that God's law is bad. He says in a number of places, uh, Romans 7, 1 Timothy 1, he says that the law is actually good because it's a written reflection, it's a communication of the holiness of God's character and nature worked out. But rather what he's saying here is that the ordinances meaning the sacrificial system of the temple that used to make people right with God, that that those ordinances have been done away with since Jesus has lived perfectly and he's fulfilled God's law for us. So the system of sacrifices that used to make people right with God no longer are needed because Jesus himself is our peace. He is our sacrifice. You don't need to sacrifice because Jesus already sacrificed. So Jesus became our sacrifice and did away with that system so that he might create in himself, who did this? He did, he created it. He might create in himself one new man out of the two. This isn't bringing together two groups that are sort of like equal playing field group now. He's making these two groups and making something new. And that's how he makes peace in himself through his flesh abolishing the the system because he is the new sacrifice. And that's how he makes this new thing called the church. Listen carefully. This is is power-packed and radical, if you'll let it be. It is our peace with God. That is Jesus that creates and unifies the church. Think about this. It is our peace with God, that is Jesus, that creates and unifies who we newly are in him. A new thing, a new creation. And it is this being in Christ Jesus that makes all the difference. Now, because Paul chops up things and makes long sentences and we want to move forward, start back at verse 14 and let's get into the flow of the text as we pick it up in verse 16. So he says, he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit here. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his own body by his life and death, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, no more sacrifices needed, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace, verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God, notice how, in one body, most think this means the church, not in his physical body, since he already talked about the physical body of Jesus, so that Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body, meaning the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Think about this. He's not just 
in Jesus, lessening the hostility, mitigating relational frustrations, reducing tensions with one another horizontally. He says Jesus actually killed them. Meaning the basis on which you have this horizontal problem with people needn't actually have life to it. If you will love what Jesus did for you in grace to you more than you love this sin management thing you're still addicted to. He didn't just lessen the hostility. He killed it. Which is why I said to have peace, you don't even have to have peace. Someone who knows what they have in Jesus has peace, even when there's no peace. He kills the hostility. Think about how radical a statement that is. How radical that says the reconciliation with God actually is. Like Jesus' atonement isn't theoretical. His blood actually saves you because he actually lived a perfect sinless life for you. And so when he did that, he made peace between you and God and became the peace for us and killed the hostility. Keep reading. He came and preached peace. Peace is used a bunch of times in this passage. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Meaning, the mystery that Paul will start to talk about here in Ephesians soon. The amazing truth is the mystery that, that Jesus didn't come just for the, the Old Testament people of God. He didn't come just for the Jews. It's for all the world, all the nations, not just Jews, but all the world now has access. Look at verse 18 again. Notice the Trinity here. Through Jesus, in one spirit, to the Father. Now, this idea that, that all of the nations had access to God through Jesus who is peace was revolutionary and mind-blowing in a way at the time for Jews and Gentiles that goes very deeply into all those rooted racial and ethnic and societal and religious prejudices and barriers that have always divided people throughout history. And this issue between them mattered in this new church at Ephesus because there was a long history of, of hostility and division between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, take it out of your pocket, verse 14, when Paul speaks of the dividing wall of hostility there in verse 14, he's not just speaking metaphorically. He was referring to, at the time, an actual wall in the Jewish temple that kept the Gentiles from entering into Jewish territory. Now, biblically, the court of the Gentiles was meant to be a place that included the nations, that included the Gentiles, so that they could come to the temple and that they could worship God. But the Jews of that day, they'd put up this sign on this wall, which is why he calls it the dividing wall of hostility. He puts up a sign. The Jews had put up a sign that had turned it, and instead of a place where they were included in worship of God, they were excluded. It was a barrier from worship. This inscription on the wall said, no foreigner, 
may enter within the dividing wall around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. So if these previously divided groups were going to live and worship and grow together, they would have to be reconciled to one another on the basis of something far more substantive than all those addictive world ways that they were used to dealing with sin through. They would have to be reconciled through Christ. Which is to say, friends, this is the only way peace between people actually works. If there is sin or strife or hostility with anyone, you cannot be meaningfully reconciled without dealing with that sin first. Which means, think about this, for the Christian who knows they have everything they need in Christ, and it's a grace-based reconciliation that's given to you and offered by the free gift of the gospel of grace that you accept as yours, if that's you and you know you have everything you could ever need in Jesus, it means you love the gospel so passionately and you live from it and you preach it to yourself day in and day out so that you can go through this life with peace even though you don't have peace. It means that you can be reconciled to everyone around you without threat of being condemned even as you are being condemned. It means you know whose you are and where you're headed and why, even as you are being slandered, falsely accused, misunderstood, because you know Jesus has actually already dealt with your sin. This isn't just a theoretical atonement. It means crazy stuff like you can apologize first. You can lead with humility. It means, it means relationally, horizontally, you can give up your personal quest for justice. It means you needn't manipulate situations around you into this me-first quest for reparations. It means you can stop perverting relationships into opportunities to, to manage sin for one another that only the blood of Jesus can handle. Think about this for a second. In your experience with human beings, what on earth is the crack you're smoking to think? That they're trustworthy to give you something that you can have that even begins to border what you have in Jesus. If we can be people who understand and live from and love the gospel truth that every spiritual blessing in Christ is everything we need, And if you don't give it to me, which you can't, that's okay. Can you imagine what what we could accomplish as as a group of people, this, this new creation called the church in Christ? Can you imagine what we could accomplish together for the sake of the lost in our community if people around us would discover that our relationships don't have to be ways for me to constantly pervert and manipulate you into a social justice quest or reparations for me fest? 
But they, but they would be welcomed and not excluded to, be, to become who God made them to be. And if we were a place that lived relationally with one another in horizontal terms, from the truth that we are reconciled with God first, it would be this healthy and beautiful and flourishing community where people would become who God made them to be, where their gifts would be used. Marriages would be saved. Addicts would come to know the grace that they need to make it through another 24 hours. Kids would give their lives to serving Jesus. We would learn what God has actually done for us because of how you treat me and how I treat you. That would be amazing. That's what the church is. It's a place where what we have in Jesus is the place from which we behave, we talk, we treat one another. We extend it in ways to one another that come from the truth. That comes from the truth that we have everything we need in Jesus. And we teach that to one another instead of the old ways of dealing with sin that never worked in the first place. Let's pray, friends. Lord, forgive us for all the various ways in which we give in to the old man. We say yes to the flesh and continue to seek from relationships with one another what no human being could possibly give. So, Father, we want to give grace. We want to give mercy. We want to be people who extend your love to one another because of the confidence we have in your son Jesus. Knowing that we have new life that you've achieved for us and you offer to us. That we couldn't earn on our own and that we certainly didn't deserve. And so the Lord, the way we treat one another would be in a way which <laughs> makes clear that they don't deserve it. But that it comes from you. So, Father, teach us what the gospel means and how to live it relationally with one another so that we wouldn't uh, continue to give ourselves into poor methods of pseudo-reconciliation. Uh, their lives wouldn't be a constant quest for reparations and justice that can't happen this side of heaven. So, Father, we give ourselves to your plan for our lives and your vision that comes from who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.